Welcome to our podcast series, Identity Dialoguing with the Other and Myself. I'm your host, Dr. Nita Chaudhary. Today we speak with Dr. Dominique Charon, who has had an illustrious career as an epidemiologist and veterinarian at the International Development Research Center and is a leader in STEM and global, global health. She is the outgoing Vice President of Research and Programs at the International Development Research Centre in Canada. And she speaks to us today about the importance of having women in decision-making roles and in boardrooms, but also that this is not enough. She also believes that diversity of perspectives is important, including all of society approach to make good decisions and ask the right questions in STEM and problem solving. Dominique also explores the role of a mother as a scientist and how structural changes need to be made in order to support scientific career trajectories in spite of the demands of motherhood. Welcome to our podcast series, Identity Dialoguing with the Other and Myself. I'd like to welcome Dr. Dominique Charon uh, to our podcast. Uh, Dominique has had an illustrious career in research and international development as a veterinarian and epidemiologist. And we are here to talk to her about her role as a leader, a woman leader in the area of STEM. Um, welcome, Dominique. Nita, it's really a pleasure to have this conversation with you today, and uh, thank you for uh, for inviting me. Thank you. So I wanted to start with you um, and how, as this discussion is about identity, your leader, you, your identity as a leader has evolved over your career. Um, I wondered if you could tell me a little bit about about that. Yeah, you know, I started my career as a veterinarian, as a as a clinician, um, practicing in uh, small animal clinics in uh, Canada, and in in that context, I I was a a young woman um, in a professional leadership position, and always, you know, as essentially in charge. I found that very empowering and satisfying. And that's where I, I really began to feel the, the, the lived experience of leadership in the sense that, that it was, uh, it's how my innate leadership skills began to manifest in a professional environment and how I, um, began to learn and see how my approach worked with the people around me. Following that, I went back to school in graduate school. You know, your the opportunities for leadership are more um, informal, collaborative type of leadership in a scientific context with other graduate students and so forth. A number of opportunities arose in there, but no, no. Um, in a postdoctoral context, I led a research program around climate change and its impact on um, the risk of, of infectious diseases in Canada. And that's where my um, I was the lead on a grant application, but my collaborators did not report to me in an organizational sense. And through that work, which was in the context of a research program embedded at the at Health Canada, the Department of Health of Canada, uh, expanded my my scientific leadership, 
And then uh, from that made the jump to uh, the international development sphere in an organization called the International Development Research Center of Canada, where I led a team uh, focused on ecosystem approaches to health and their application in a development context. And my career grew then through uh, over the, the next 15 years through various levels of more senior management to the position I'm in now, which is as vice president um, with the responsibility for all of our research programs. And that's where the formal dimensions of leadership evolved. The, and so going from a clinical practitioner leader where I have decisions about care in the early days of my career, where that, that decision-making is absolute and important for the, the life and health of the patient to a context of scientific leadership, which is much more um, a great deal of creativity and um, vision involved, but also uh, the ability to bring people around an idea and to then implement those types of skills. And then into a more formal organizational type of leadership where the management dimensions of leadership became very, very important as well. And how the tension between the creative and there is discrimination, there is inequality, certainly, it hasn't um, been felt in the same way, I think, as, as women in this field, perhaps in other countries have, have had to deal with it. Uh, that being said, in any, I have had to deal as a, as a woman in, in my career with microaggression uh, statements like, where's your smile? Um, or um, by, by supervisors, um, uh, situations in which I've been exposed to sexualized humor in the workplace, not directed at me, but or about me, but sexualized humor in the workplace uh, and other forms of sexism in the workplace that have made have made it clear that um, even in public health, even in an enlightened scientific environment, um, there is still a great deal of work to do. The other thing that I would say uh, is this this idea of uh, structural issues that that women come across in their careers. One of the things I'm most proud of is my part in helping change policies in workplaces wherein women who took time off for maternity leave would be discriminated against when it came to promotion. And the realization for an organization that that is a structural form of discrimination and that uh, it's very easy to change, um, but it, it requires a change in mindset, right? The change in mindset, and I would say um, environments I have worked in have been gender blind, wherein women uh, contributing to science and women scientists, not contributing to women scientists, women researchers, um, are 
penalized for taking time off. And the reaction to the conversation about changing that is, yes, but they haven't put in the time compared to others, mainly men or other women who have not taken time off. And uh, the, the shift in mindset that is required to say the taking of time off to have kids is something that women must do. <laughs> Men cannot do it physically. And therefore, um, the, the, the frameworks and policies that we have have to uh, allow for that without discriminating against them. And it should not be about the time put in, but about the, the, the work and the evidence that these women um, have contributed sufficiently to science to be able to progress without being penalized for that time. And it's still a struggle, I would say, for women everywhere in science um, to try and maintain the level of output required uh, in while, while also taking time to have kids. It's not resolved fully. And I would say in the scientific community writ large, there's still a, there's still a problem in that women will publish less in their childbearing years, unless they stay up uh, all night and all day to, uh, to continue their scientific careers and outputs. Um, and the solution to this is, is a structural one that needs to value more than just scientific outputs as part of a scientist's contribution um, in their career. And to make it possible for both for women, but also for men to take time to have uh, to spend with their families at crucial moments in in early uh, childhood. Well, that's very interesting. So, I mean, it's an example of a concrete outcome in which you've influenced with regards to women and their um, mm -hmm. contribution in the scientific field. I'm kind of interesting and interested in this question, but I'm not exactly sure whether it's a question that is fair given today's discussions around gender. But do you believe there are qualities that women leaders have that may be different. Uh, for example, there are two prime ministers, Jacinta Arden and um, the prime minister in Finland, who you know have been pointed out in the press of having particular qualities that are female. Uh, Jacinta Arden, for example, they talk a lot about kindness and her perspective mm -hmm. on the role of kindness as a leader. Do you feel that women have a different type of leadership quality in science, um, contribute even the research questions they asked or the way in which they conduct research or prioritize research? Do you think there are, there are qualities that you can pinpoint? It's a really good question, Nita, and I've thought about this a lot. Um, in the context, I think what we, there, there are two dimensions to this. One, leadership uh, and decisions are better made with a diversity of views and perspectives. And the problem I would say with, with decision-making in an organizational context in most of our institutions and organizations, businesses, is that they are still predominantly being made by people who have similar lived experience white middle-aged men with successful 
careers of various dimensions or positions in, in society. And um, that makes for a, a set of decisions that are biased by that very uniform compared to what it might be, lived experience. The lived experience of those men is very similar. The reason we need more people with different lived experience in positions of leadership is to help bring that lived experience and those perspectives to decision-making, policy-making, to better reflect the whole of society and, and or the whole of an organization, but the whole of society and public public institutions like mine, uh, to have to have that decision making, strategy and policy uh, reflect the whole of of society, and we don't have that. Right? It's it's um, it's a continual struggle. I would say what we have in Canada. Um, in public institutions in Canada is a growing awareness that the status quo is a problem. And that's a huge win right? for, for, for um, a culture of, of leadership to change at the level of a, an entire society. There needs to be in that uh, process, a recognition of the current culture of leadership, that it's not that the current the current status quo is not uh, the best and that change changes need to be made to change that. So I would say in, in Canada, we're fortunate that there's a growing awareness in public sector. And I would say perhaps in some sectors of, pub, of private sector as well, that a greater diversity of views is needed. And this is beyond the need for gender equality and greater representation of women, although that is I would say the the first the the first um, earliest realization that there aren't enough women in boardrooms, there aren't enough women in positions of senior leadership, and that that needs to change. But having more women um, without a change in the culture and the perception that you know, yes, we need more women, but we're still going to make decisions the way we've always made them. Um, we're still going to. Um, have an environment wherein people with power sit in a room, hash out um, their vision for uh, a decision, and then implement that decision without bringing in a wider perspective of views outside of that decision-making room. Whether there's women in there or not is still a problematic patriarchal decision-making model. And for that patriarchal decision-making model to change, having women in the room helps, but isn't enough. The, the, I, the culture of decision-making needs to take on the, the sense that a diversity of, of perspectives is essential for the best decisions and to develop and implement ways of, of bringing a variety of views to the decision-making process in a meaningful way and in an efficient way that will um, make it such that the decisions that are made in that room are informed by a wide variety of views. And then absolutely um, over time bring in 
and help build up those different perspectives that will be more valued and therefore have more chances at leadership. And by that, I mean, um, just as women struggle to um, achieve positions of leadership and to be effective, not to achieve positions of leadership and to be supported in positions of leadership, uh, other marginalized voices, groups, people of visible minorities, we would call in Canada or racialized groups, uh, people with non-binary gender identities are feel that they do not have the same access to, to power. And that, that um, those, uh, it's a, a I would say a whole of society project to bring about the change. Public institutions are in a position of leadership and can can put in place policies that make it clear that this is in society's interest to make these changes in, in positions of leadership. But the whole of society then has to support the talent pool to be able to fill those positions. Thank you. That was very comprehensive. I am, though, wondering if you think there are particular qualities that women have. Of women. So um, there are differences. And I, and I would say I, I um, because women's lived experience is different than men's um, and the lived experience of different women is different mm-hmm. from one from another, the um, qualities that we bring um, reflect that different li- lived experience. Uh, women will at least in in my experience, tend to consider first or um, alongside other factors, the impact of decisions on people. And that, you know, that's one way in which decision-making is improved when there are more women in the room. But I go back to what I said before, the women in the room need to have the opportunity to bring that perspective to the table. If the decision-making culture is such that the impact of decisions on people is not um, valued or important, then women who bring that perspective will uh, not, not necessarily be heard or be successful. And if we go back maybe a decade or perhaps it's still very prevalent now, women in boardrooms uh, will have a decision-making style that is not much different than their male peers. So you think that the culture is still so patriarchal that women can't express themselves in a way or doesn't allow them to break out of a box, that they have to play the game, well, so to speak? Absolutely. The system that builds leaders and puts people in position of of executive power values some types of um, skills and uh, attributes more than others, whether they're coming from a man or a woman or a non-binary person. And so while changing that culture um, uh, is more likely to happen when there are more people in the room challenging that culture, that the challenge to that culture may come from women, it may also come from men and and others in the room who say the impact of this decision on people is important. Um, And yes, 
more women in the room will will help strengthen the uh, the value of that perspective. Um, and it's uh, but it you know it I I try to in my own journey of being much more aware of bias and and um, my own sort of inherent biases, my unconscious bias is not assume that a, a person will make a certain um, will bring a certain perspective because of their gender. So actually, that brings me to another question, which is, how do you see yourself as a role model for young women in STEM? Um, going into STEM, into leadership positions. Uh, yeah. The, so if I go now, I've, I've been working in the field of public health and international development in public institutions in Canada, in a public a public um, institution in Canada now for for most of my career and as I said at the beginning I've been very fortunate to be in a quite enabling environment not without problems Canada has in my experience um, has begun to really uh, strengthen the perspective of gender and inclusion in its model of of policy of leadership um, and has has made great strides in the past decade. So, but if I if I go back to to so that's been my experience. But I started out in veterinary science, which was in my uh, formative years shifting from a male dominated field to particularly in in clinical small animal practice, pets and and companion animals. Um, more female dominated, but still quite uh, the the faculty and the power structures in that profession, very male dominated. That was quite an important moment in my life to, to realize that while there were no um, formal barriers to me becoming a veterinarian and to succeeding, there would be significant barriers to me developing uh, uh, or achieving levels of leadership, for example, as a faculty member, as a uh, practice owner, um, uh, or in the uh, governance of the profession. Now that has changed over the past 25 years, but when I was when I was uh, emerging as a, a newly minted veterinarian, I began to see these imbalances. And that then as I pursued my uh, doctoral studies uh, in my PhD, I, I also then, it became very important to me to push for a greater inclusion of women, greater support for women students, particularly uh, uh, women graduate students who were also having children. I had a baby during my graduate studies. There were no maternal benefits at that time. I went back to studies and to to my uh, teaching roles when my baby was six weeks old. You know, it's it's uh, it that's changed. But when I was uh, was I when I was a student, it was still there were no no supports for for women graduate students. So that was formative. When I when I think of um, 
And so now uh, the the opportunity such as this to talk about. Absolutely. So as a scientist and a female scientist, your lived experience, as you mentioned, as a young mother mm -hmm. in graduate studies, as a female veterinarian, you you modeled how you moved through that process for other young women to follow. Yeah. And, you know, even in my own career, uh, as I people looking at my career see um, a certain trajectory, but there have been many times where I have found it, I've had to make tough choices. You know, do I, by, by taking on a career in international development that would have me travel extensively and be away from my son as a single mother was a tough choice. And I was enabled to make that choice because I had a very supportive extended family close by. Mm -hmm. Other women have made similar choices. Other women in similar circumstances have pursued careers in international development, um, uh, including living overseas, where um, supports are, are, are more affordable, shall we say, and, and can be, um, people can surround themselves with the support they need. Women can surround themselves with the support they need, but they're tough choices. These are tough choices. That's very déchirant um, to, to leave your kid behind with a babysitter, um, even if that babysitter is your mother, right, a grandmother. And those kinds of um, decisions don't necessarily have the wide societal support that they would need to have for women to feel more comfortable making those decisions to pursue at the same time science and their careers, um, whether it's an international context or, or women who need to be in the lab overnight to pursue research. Um, and those kinds of choices, I, I certainly felt that I was making them on my own and that um, uh, the, the constant tension between decisions for my career versus the need to just to be a, a good mother and society has a long way to go I think before we can really support women to thrive culturally as I said before in particularly in STEM fields there's a long way to go um, the the perception is that sure women are welcome but you know, if they take time off to have babies, they will be penalized because their scientific output will be less. Um, sure, women are welcome, but, you know, they can't, they need to be available to finish the experiments and, uh, and have come up with another solution for picking up the kids from daycare. Um, and these kinds of uh, challenges wind up in in my experience and there's been research on this as well um, by a number of of researchers now examining women's scientific trajectories why is it that women exit their scientific careers before they're at the level where they can move into positions of senior leadership why is it that Women, women, fewer women than men complete their PhDs. Fewer women than men uh, complete their postdocs and exit scientific careers at an early stage in their careers 
because they are unable to resolve the tensions between their family goals and their uh, careers. These types of uh, challenges mean that when we get to those senior leadership uh, positions, deans, heads of research councils, um, uh, senior faculty, senior scientific advisors um, to, to government, um, senior scientific positions in private sector, they're not women. There are fewer women than men competing for those positions. So that, that kind of um, cohort, how to keep and preserve and strengthen the cohort of women and other groups who are underrepresented in the senior ranks, how to, how to encourage, how to support so that they stay in science and, and succeed in science is a, is a major challenge for the STEM community. And this is the case in Canada. It's the case in most um, high-income countries, and it's even more so the case in low- and middle-income countries, where women um, face enormous societal hurdles, much greater discrimination and judgment against them for uh, favoring career over family, and uh, far fewer societal, governmental, public supports and safety nets to enable them to do it. So the challenge then is that the, the ideas where, that inform science, the perspectives that inform science, that all of that creative and innovative capacity that is present on this planet, only a sec segment of it is contributing the new ideas that we need to solve the biggest problems we're facing, climate change, of poverty, of um, conflict without a broad cross society whole of, of the world perspective in research, including in STEM fields, we won't have, uh, we are hamstringing our ability to solve the global challenges. Mm -hmm. Well, what I'm hearing from you is this judgment. There's this great judgment of women pursuing STEM. And what I've also heard is this uh, balance between the identity as a mother and the identity as a leader and as a scientist. Mm -hmm. um, and this struggle of these different descriptors of who your identity is and other women out there, this struggle mm -hmm. and the trade-offs between these different descriptors of identity. And I wondered if there's an example, and you have given a few examples of a scenario where you as a woman, you as a mother, you as a scientist has prevented access to power or resources. And what are some of the techniques you use to problem solve around this? So giving some people some solutions around problem solving, mm -hmm. around balancing these. Uh... It's a really good question, Nita. I think being clear about what uh, I wanted being clear with myself about what I wanted at particular moments in my life has been, I think, in retrospect, had I invested more at various points in clarifying for myself what I wanted and, um, and then pursue that and put in place what I would need to achieve what it is that I wanted would, um, would be, I would say, a useful sort of 
um, tool or approach to help other women building their careers, framing it in such a way that a, a young mother who is also a scientist or has a particular career objective uh, needs to be supportive to do both. And that it is important for the child to be supported and invested in, but that it is not the idea. And it's not uh, not helpful for women in STEM. So uh, pushing against that idea, not, not succumbing to trying to do it all, um, and being clear at various moments about what's more important. And that can change from week to week. This week, it might be, I need to uh, write this paper. I need to complete my promotion and tenure um, uh, package. I need to complete this experiment in the lab. I'm going to be in there 20 hours a day for the next two weeks. And then at another point, it might be, my child is struggling at school. I need to invest more time in supporting my child, bringing the right supports around so that my child can succeed with this particular hurdle, whatever it might be. Or my child has a birthday and I want to invest in, in this birthday party for my child. And those, those choices do not sometimes they'll be in conflict and then those there's tough choices, but it's being clear about what's more important at a various moment. That I think if we were to empower one another um, to, to focus in on what's more important this week or this month or this year would be very enabling for women to, to navigate those different dimensions of their, of their identity and to be, to feel, to feel supported, to invest in the career and the science at the moments when it's important for, for them to do it. The other thing that I think is very important, and, and you've touched on it a few times, the, the mentorship. Uh, very comfortable for me to sit here and tell and talk about my life and the choices I made when I was in it. It was extremely difficult at times to, to make the, the, to take the risk, to make a choice that felt hard, to push myself forward, to pursue um, a promotion, for example, when um, the, the internal talk in my head would be, Ooh, are you ready for this? Do you, do you, feel like uh, you can invest the time in it? Do you feel as though you have the right supports around you to do it? And I think uh, um, having more mentors to draw on in those moments of doubt, of self-doubt, uh, crucial to, uh, to helping women move forward. We all have doubts all the time, right? Men and women. Women talk about it more maybe. Men have them too. Um, but where I've found, uh, and, and my mentors have not all, all been women by any means. And in fact, most of my mentors in my early career were men. Um, but as, as I've moved forward in the, the latest part of my career, I've found really, really important to have access to women 
role models, women mentors who can challenge my self-doubt and um, in a way that feels safe um, and help me overcome any sort of internal mental barriers I've built for myself. Very interesting. So you talk about mentorship, you talk about your role as a mother, as a scientist, you talk about support, the importance mm -hmm. of support networks, um, and maybe the role of an institution creating mm -hmm. support, but also socially uh, and through family, how support you uh, and others to go mm -hmm. through that process um, of creating that multiple complex identity that isn't just a scientist, that isn't just mm -hmm. a woman, is a mother and so that brings me to uh, a question about we did in the workshop around there's you in the middle and around there's some circular satellites of descriptors mm -hmm. of who Dr. Dominique Charon is mm -hmm. I wondered if you could just give us some of those descriptors yeah uh, well the one that we haven't talked about I'll come to third but clearly for me, my identity, the, the descriptors of that arise from my sense of self of me are of a, a feminist scientist person who enjoys bringing people together to, to work together towards a common goal. So that's the leadership dimension, the collaborative leadership dimension. There's a lot to do in the world. There's a lot to do in a life. And I have always um, considered myself a person who brings people together to do things. Um, and then the, the, the parts of my identity that are important, that are defined in relation to others, certainly mother, the, I'm, I'm the daughter of an aging uh, mother. Um, and so a lot of my sense of self uh, in in recent years has been in relation to how I can support her to remain independent and and as a friend and you know a, a, a woman who has in in relation to this this network of people who, who are important to me um those are all uh, important dimensions that that have different have different, weight at different moments and and certainly my my son now who's an adult and uh, it's it's a different kind of relationship now than than it was uh, when he was a child um and likewise my relationship my definition my relationship with my mother is a is a different one and is defined very much by by what she needs now and how important it is for me for her to to feel empowered to remain independent, the one that I think I I if I go back to the the three sort of dimensions of my own arising from me the 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 feminist we talked about I I feel um, I continue to live that um, in different ways I feel I haven't always lived it as much as I might have, but I, I, uh, I, it has only become a stronger dimension of my identity throughout, throughout my life. And not only in relation to work, but in relation to how I show up as a mother, how I support my own mother's independence, how I support my friends. Um, 
the the scientist in informs my worldview. I I look for evidence. I look for um, uh, data to support my positions on things, and I struggle in an environment where people do not do that. So it it means I must be constantly uh, reminding myself when I am outside of a scientific um, empirical worldview, which you know is very dominant, I would say, in Western society, but is not the same everywhere. That not everyone views the world that way, and that um, the fact that people don't necessarily view the world through an empirical scientific lens does not mean that their truth is less valid than mine. And that that is a is a constant. It's not a constant in the sense that I operate in a organizational and societal framework that for the most part shares that view. But when, when I interact with um, people in the field, the communities that the science that my organization supports is meant to help, I need to remind myself that it is not everyone's worldview and that how I communicate and how I listen needs to be informed by some sort of self-check. The last one, which is the, the leadership dimension, I would say is the one that I've, I've struggled with at, at various points in my life. And that's partly because as a, a creative um, um, thinker and as someone who's very open to different perspectives, um, it has not always been easy to manifest my leadership in a very patriarchal um, environment. And I would say all of my mentors um, at key points in my career were from that patriarchal, the, the dominant, I know it's patriarchal, but it's the dominant view. And it's it's um, it's hard to bring forward different ways of doing things when the the really the the dominant view or the dominant culture of of leadership is not is not collaborative, is not as open to different processes for decision making, and that I would say. Um, I feel that I have made a contribution, but where um, there's there's so much more growth that I can have personally in this in this uh, in this journey, and where the opportunity or the need for more diverse leadership perspectives in society uh, is is needed, so that people like me who um, want to do things differently have, have, have more access to, to environments and cultures where that's possible, decision-making cultures. Right, well, thank you. That was very 
holistic and very comprehensive description of your identity descriptors. And um, I really want to thank you for taking the time with us. It was fascinating as usual. And um, I look forward to continuing to discuss this project that we're uh, working, we're working on together. And um, I look forward to seeing you soon in person. This podcast has been brought to you by Saffron Global Health. It complements workshops that are designed to create a safe space to talk about identity and to create a sense of belonging. If you want to learn more or get involved, please visit our website at www.saffronglobalhealth.com.